Manufacturers are now officially required to report on the presence of conflict minerals in their products. How good a job are they doing? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is Episode 50 of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. It's been about four months since the Securities and Exchange Commission's new rule on conflict minerals reporting has been in effect. In theory, if you're a manufacturer, you should now know precisely how much tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold from the Democratic Republic of the Congo is lurking within your products. The idea is to shed a light on materials coming from mines that are controlled by armed gangs. So, is everybody up to speed on the rule? Hardly. Many companies are still reporting their conflict minerals content as undeterminable. And whether you're really required to have a reporting regime in place right now depends on the size of your company. My guest today is Ryan Lynch, Business Development Manager for the Information and Insights Division of Underwriters Laboratories, Inc., or UL. He talks about how good a job companies have done so far in complying with the conflict minerals reporting rule and the realities of trying to identify trace amounts of these materials in a global, multi-stage, multi-partner supply chain. He also offers a solution to the problem. So here is my conversation with Ryan Lynch. Ryan Lynch, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. So I want to talk about conflict minerals, which is a new uh, regulation just coming down the pike from the Securities and Exchange Commission. What do you see right now as the biggest challenges that companies face in complying with that new SEC rule, which is from the uh, the Dodd-Frank law originally? Uh, What's the biggest challenge that they're facing? Well, the law is focused on disclosure, but I, you know, I see the challenges less in the reporting part of this and more in the information gathering. You know, first off, you know, if, if you start with the fact that the minerals that this is, that this is focused on, tin, tungsten, tantalum, or gold, uh, they're fungible once they're processed at the smelter. So, you know, when I first approached this, I thought of, well, how do we actually trace a mineral back to its source after it's smelted down? You know, am I actually, you know, trying to look at this molecule by molecule to see if the tin in my solder in my product came from which mine. Um, luckily, that's not the case. The industry addressed that pretty early on by establishing the conflict-free smelter program, which is a standardized way to manage uh, this, critic, this critical control point uh, being the smelter or the refiner. Um, if you think about the scale and the complexity and the sheer number of components in the laptop you're probably using right now, and you decompose that into each underlying part and subcomponent and sub-subcomponent, and then try to first, just to determine which of those parts contain these metals, tin, tungsten, tantalum, or gold, that's a big undertaking by itself that requires a great deal of time and expertise, both of which companies never have enough of. 
then if you try to create a chain of custody that links each type of interrelated information, parts, products, suppliers, etc., so that you can establish and document those relationships from product to component and component to subcomponent and so on, until you reach a point where you're able to confirm a relationship with the source of the information that you need, um, be that a certified smelter or an actual mine. That's a huge undertaking that relies on many, many interrelated parties and, and different uh, types of interrelated information. And then try to gather the information related to conflict minerals from each of those parties, uh, or more specifically, facilitate a process where those parties are collaborating with their direct business partners to gather and report the necessary information uh, downstream you know, from party to party, and then try to interpret all that information as a cascades downstream you know, to where you are being the customer. Um, that's a lot. And then um, you've got the challenge of trying to validate some of the claims that are being made from your supply chain. So that whole thing that I just described, that's the hardest part. Uh, as far as I could see. Is that all, really? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, That seems like that's a tremendous, tremendous <laughs> challenge that you just that you just described. Although I would have thought I, th I thought that the 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 real tracking or tracing um, aspect of it did take place at the at the smelter. Is that in fact the case that that's where you can determine where uh, which mines that stuff came from? And after that, it's virtually impossible to tell. Right. So, you know, there's been a big focus by the industry on uh, on managing that point in the supply chain. You know, it's the thinnest point of the hourglass. And like I said, it's where the material essentially becomes fungible and you, know, you really can't trace it beyond that point. So there is a uh, conflict-free smelter program that uh, UL is an accredited auditor for that essentially does a chain of custody audit from the smelter back to the mine and looks at all the material on site and everything that comes in and everything that goes out and tries to associate all of that with documentation that takes it back to a credible mine. The whole industry is really reliant on that program. Um, and, you know, that started pretty early on uh, when this, be when this be began to become a, uh, you know, a real thing. Even that said, you've still got from the mine back to the customer, there can be, you know, one or a dozen nodes in the network uh, to try to trace this back to one of those certified mines. I think we've, we've done a nice job of that with the, with the platform that we've put together. Um, you try it for a single component and a single product, and it feels really hard. Then you explode that out to hundreds or thousands of products and components and suppliers, and you get the idea of the challenge that people are faced with. Um, when I first started to work with this particular project, I wasn't sure how possible or feasible that it was, but it feels a lot more feasible now that we've gotten uh, further further down the down the path. All right. So, what was the initial deadline? It was May of this year, was it not? That they, the companies first had to start filing reports of conflict minerals content in their supply Cor chain. Correct. That first disclosure period was 2013, uh, and then the disclosures were due in May. That was pushed back a bit till June, and now 2014 is the second reporting year. Uh, years one and two for large companies, they have the ability to report undeterminable, and that was a way for um, to, to essentially accept the, how big this challenge is and to be honest about the fact that people would be spending a lot of time gathering this type of information but would probably find resistance or find gaps in information or experiment with new ways to gather it. So this year is the last year that large companies can still declare undeterminable. Smaller companies uh, have, uh, have years, you know, two more years beyond that. Um, but, you know, from when I speak with customers, they're very conscious of the fact that that um, that, that time frame runs out and, uh, you know, they want to be prepared to be able to 
have as uh, you know clear and defendable of, uh, of a declaration that they can. And you know, at that point, there'll be a number of companies that are subject to private sector audits um, of their disclosures. And um, I think that's that's something that people are very conscious of and, and concerned about as well. They want to make sure that they've got enough of the right data to be able to defend a declaration that their CFO or officer of the company is signing off on. What's your impression of how successful companies were in meeting that first deadline? Did they come up with the necessary reports, or are there some laggards who haven't even got that far yet? I think there's uh, just under 6,000 companies that have filed, which was actually pretty close to what was predicted. Uh, So from that perspective, it's good. Um, Many of them have been purposely vague, uh, and I don't want to make that sound overly critical. Uh, that, that's not my intent. I think the fact of the matter is, is that there aren't a whole lot of companies that have the necessary information to make a very uh, clear and transparent and valid and auditable claim that their minerals are conflict-free. You know, we're still pretty early in the process of gathering and validating that information. Uh, and like I mentioned, luckily the law gave that two-year grace period to claim undeterminable, but uh, the window's closing. You know, at this point, I see a lot of companies who had relied on manual spreadsheets and email to gather that type of information are realizing that there's limits to how much that can scale. And, you know, they're starting to look at solutions like the one that we offer. So they're on their way, but uh, they're not 100% there, even in terms of that first deadline necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they've they've disclosed information, but, um, you know, uh, uh, there's still just a lot of gaps in information um, and just, you know, a lot of work to do with uh, with something that's of this scale and complexity. And there's also, I think, the challenge of just integrating the reporting requirement into their everyday operations. I mean, it has to become almost second nature in an ongoing way. Uh, do you think that companies are beginning to adjust in that manner, or is it still a tremendous effort that they're putting forward just to meet the uh, requirement? I think people are still buried in trying to figure out how to gather the information. And and I agree 100%. You know, anytime you've got some sort of risk management function, in particular with something like uh, you know, product risk and supply chain risk, which is big and complex and oftentimes outside of the walls of your own organization, mistakes that, com- that companies sometimes make are you know, they've got the compliance guys sitting in one cubicle on one side of the building and the sourcing or design or the engineering guys on the other side of the building, and they don't speak enough in many cases. So you've got somebody who is dinging a supplier or a product because it doesn't meet spec or it's not safe or it's, um, you know, it's, it's using uh, labor practices in the supply chain that don't meet the company's standards. And if that is not, not only communicated to the people who are making purchasing decisions, but uh, ideally if it's built into that sourcing professionals or pro- procurement professionals review and compensation, you know, that's when it starts to grab people's attention. So, even if they're gathering the information, you're right, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure it's actually embedded into day-to-day operations. So you've described the challenge of internal integration, and that's just the beginning. Then it becomes a question of integrating with suppliers, with your outside partners. So to what extent have suppliers been willing to step forward with, with the requisite information, and to what extent is that still a challenge for the OEM or whoever is working with those suppliers? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's it's hard even when you both have the same boss and you're, you know, 25 feet away from each other. But uh, when you're, you know, you're not part of the same company, it's even more pronounced. I would say the success hasn't been great up to this point. Um, most companies that I speak with have 
you know, admittedly pretty underwhelming, uh, underwhelming response rates from their supply chain. And again, that's not to criticize. It's a function of, uh, you know, where we are in the evolution of this thing. You know, I had come over from the responsible sourcing side of the business where we would audit factories for labor issues. So even just the challenge of getting the manufacturing site from your direct vendor, getting the correct information, setting up a time to go to the site, gathering credible information, that felt really challenging at times. So this notion of going multiple tiers upstream in a supply chain and having all these interdependent parties, um, it's going to take some time before this is less of an anomaly that, from the supplier's perspective and more of standard business practice. Um, I think there's also the issue of gaps in the chain and of relationships that I don't being that I don't see being addressed in many cases. Uh, and to be honest, you know, some of the platforms I've seen don't seem to address that. So, you know, you'll have a customer that's that's asking for information from their tier one supplier. Um, tier one supplier will provide a list of smelters, and you know, the response to the to the survey, which is an industry standard uh, survey template. But what oftentimes is missing is the chain of relationships between that tier one supplier and that smelter. Uh, and I don't see people really digging into that question as much as I think they should, or as much as their auditor will, or as much as their B2B customers may. So um, that was something that we were conscious of as we were designing our tools to make sure that we can create a, a chain of custody within the system from party to party that traces these components downstream until they're you know, assembled into, into products. I think in some respects, customers are deferring work if they're not front-loading the process with enough of the right data that is uh, correctly linked with one another. Is it important that the OEM have visibility directly of suppliers up the chain to Tier 2 and Tier 3, or should they be relying on their Tier 1 suppliers who then in turn verify from their upstream suppliers what kind of content is there? I mean, what, what, what level of visibility are we talking about here that falls to the final, the final company? It's a great question because in some respects they need to see all of it, but in some respects they can't feasibly comprehend all of it when they don't want to, to, to handle all of it. You know, why should I, as a, as a customer, have to go chase a Tier 5 supplier for information who might not know me, who probably wouldn't respond to me because I'm not cutting a check to them, um, so, you know, we designed our tools to allow each business party, if I'm working with a buyer and I'm working with a seller or a supplier, you know, I am working with both of those parties. I am gathering information from my supplier. I'm, I'm using that information to support my claims that I'm giving to my own customer. So it's a, it's a cascading chain of relationships that this is reliant on. Um, so as much as our, our technology supports that, um, that uh, exchange of information, up and down multiple tiers and, and can interpret that, uh, you know, the, the, the risk that, that uh, is derived from that. But that said, there's still people involved in the process that need to provide the information. So that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest gap that I think collectively we'll have to get over is getting everybody at multiple tiers to buy into this and to provide information. So, you know, individually and collectively, people can provide the information to their various uh, business partners on both sides of the relationship. But are you saying that your approach deals with these relationships in a discrete manner, I mean, between the OEM and the Tier 1, and then you have another relationship between Tier 1 and Tier 2, and then Tier 2 and Tier 3 and on up the line? Is that how? Is that the best way to address it, at least for now, or is it a more holistic type of approach that you are undertaking? 
Well, um, you know, for, you know, our perspective and, and you know the information we've gathered from customers and other you know informed stakeholders is that the people will respond to their customer. So if I'm the customer at the top of the supply chain and I'm trying to prod a tier three supplier to give me information, a I don't have the bandwidth to, to police the whole world, uh, and b they probably won't be as responsive to me as the person who will withhold their payments if they don't get them the information that they need or switch suppliers, etc. So, you know, this is really reliant on the, um, I guess, the leverage that a customer has over a supplier at whatever tier the supply chain is. And I think that will, that'll take time to make this a standard business practice to where they'll have the confidence to potentially switch suppliers if a supplier is just being completely resistant. So if there's enough customers that are saying, yes, this is a, a cost of doing business with us, um, then that's when I think people will start to integrate it further into their own their own purchasing decisions. Right now, we're still pretty early, and I don't know if people have the confidence to do that. Do you think it's a problem at all that the SEC rule really has no teeth, that there's no actual penalty for failing to comply, right? I mean, not monetary penalty, or, or is there? Well, I think the penalty would be more related to uh, false disclosures. So if you were to sort of follow the breadcrumb trail through the language of the law, it refers to other laws and, uh, uh, you know, disclosing false information to the SEC. There's, you know, there's penalties and fines related to that. That said, I think the way the law was designed was closer to, I keep going back to the analogy of the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act, which came out a few years ago and is more focused on human trafficking and slavery in the supply chain. And that law is focused on disclosure. It's not focused on preventing uh, human trafficking or slavery uh, in your supply chain. You can disclose that, yes, my supply chain is a mess, but as long as you're disclosing, you're in compliance with the law. So what it's required, what it's, what it's really uh, relying on are those other parties to act as enforcers, uh, consumers, B2B customers, uh, institutional shareholders, NGO media, who then once this, this uh, information is brought to light, uh, you know, those would be the folks that would apply the pressure that ideally uh, continues to move us in the right direction. So tell me a little bit about the concept of the platform. Is it in any way similar to kind of old style or previous ap approaches to create supplier portals? Is it a unified place where everybody feeds information in? Uh, what exactly is the nature of this platform that makes this reporting possible? Well, we, uh, we extended this from a, uh, a pre-existing platform uh, that UL had acquired uh, called WorkSmart, and that was built in 2006 and really focused on retailers and the chemical content or the formulated products, so uh, soaps and you know, floor cleaners, things like that. So there's, there's uh, federal and state laws that vary in some cases that require that uh, various chemicals are handled and labeled and transported in certain ways, and that has gotten to be, you know, a, a whole lot of information that uh, customers had difficulty getting their hands around. So, um, you know, the, we had built this platform to gather that information, the chemical composition of the formulated products, and screen that against those requirements, and then provide information to the customers so they're in a position to. Uh, you know, to handle those chemicals or chemical-based products in a way that's in compliance with federal and state laws. So we saw that we had a lot of the pieces already there to, uh, to gather the information and to report on it. The things that we added to that were the ability to load products and uh, build bills of materials around that and associate those products with multiple components, associate components with multiple suppliers, 
allow the system to be able to make these requests for information and to track that over time and then to interpret that as well. So I think some of the things that are a bit different are some of the intelligence that we built into the system that allows customers to identify risk based on contradictions of the, of the information within a single response. So if my tier one supplier sends me a response and the system thinks that it is incorrect, that's something that it calls to the customer's attention. So they're then in a position to either make an informed decision or to follow up with due diligence, which is required by the law, which is largely gone, I don't want to say ignored up to this point, but I can touch on that in just a moment. The other thing that we've done is allow the system to compare responses across multiple tiers of the supply chain and provide information to the customer that uh, identifies potential risk or contradictions amongst those. So if my tier one supplier is making a claim that's not supported by the suppliers that they purchase from, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. So that's something that we'd call out to the customer. And again, that's, that would be a candidate for due diligence on their end. So I think the ability to, to exchange information across these parties, the intelligence built into it, the ability to share with multiple customers, the ability to reach out to multiple suppliers, uh, it's a bit more workflow as opposed to just sort of a, uh, a portal where you would just sort of upload documents. But how do the red lights go off? I mean, how do you know that a piece of information you're getting might not be reliable? Is it because it's being compared against the same information from another source? Or what's the determination there? The system is looking at the, uh, we're using the EICC survey, which is an industry standard survey that was, uh, that was uh, created by the electronics industry who were really you know, at, the, at the vanguard of a lot of the work being done uh, around the conflict minerals requirements. Uh, it will look at the responses of that survey. It will look at the choice of smelter uh, and identify whether there's contradictions between the claims that someone's making versus the, you know, the smelters that they're using. And it will also do the same thing, but across multiple parties to identify where various claims from multiple suppliers aren't supporting one another. If you uh, extend it out to its furthest point, if the claims being made by the various parties, um, you know, don't make sense, you know, we've put a lot of time into, um, you know, identifying where those contradictions might be. Right, and, and you know, a, a big, uh, you know, one of the, the big challenges that a lot of customers have is around validating the information. So, you know, we still are really early in this process, we sort of collectively, and uh, people are still having difficulty just gathering the information and, and starting to interpret it. So when the information comes back, people are now asking, start just starting to ask the question, okay, something seems wrong, or I need to validate the information, or I don't trust this claim, now what? So I think that's sort of a big question that's been out there in the industry. One of the reasons we started going down this road is because the responsible sourcing group within UL uh, has been doing this work for some time. We, we were working fairly early with the uh, EICC in piloting some of the tools and methods that are used for that conflict-free smelter program, and, and you know we're still an accredited auditor for that program. You know the thing that we hadn't had early on was a tool to uh, gather information at scale, which you know like I mentioned really has been a company's biggest challenge up to this point, uh, which is why we said well we can do the advisory work and we can. Uh, validate claims via audits of smelters or supplier sites. Um, you know, do we have the uh, you know do we have enough of something internally to be able to uh, complete that picture via a platform to gather the information for that reasonable country of origin uh, inquiry process? So that's uh, that's how we got to this point. Should we assume that this is only the beginning? 
that uh, such rules will be applied to a greater number of countries and a greater number of raw materials in future? Yeah, you know, and I, I see this happening, you know, in conflict minerals, but also with, you know, with other uh, sort of analogous examples. So, you know, in conflict minerals, I know that uh, there's proposed legislation in the EU. You know, I've seen sort of outreach to local legislators in Canada and the UK to have similar laws. I can see the U.S. law or the, the EU legislation, if it's passed, being extended to other countries, such as Colombia. You know, there have been some media exposure of the FARC and uh, benefiting from tungsten. There's also been media write-ups about tin in Indonesia with human rights issues and safety issues. So it's uh, it's possible that there's uh, you know it's extended to other regions or potentially other minerals. Uh, but then you know I mentioned this earlier. We've got just tons of state and federal level reg- regulation even within the U.S. Not to mention countries around the world. You, know, you look at something like California Prop 65 and Washington state laws related to uh, children's products. And you know whether it's conflict minerals or human rights in the supply chain or the environmental impact of products or the chemical content of products. There's just a lot of things that represent a lot of different types of risks in a lot of different types of products. So, you know, if you were to sort of make a matrix of all those things, it gets really big and really complex. And then you add to that the countries where I want to distribute my products, and it gets to be a lot. So we've been, you know, at UL have been focusing a lot of our efforts on, uh, you know, not only validating and certifying and testing and inspecting to some of these standards, but also you know, providing designers and engineers with the information that they need as early as possible in the design process to be able to design and and manufacture and source products and have the information at their fingertips uh, to be able to to do this and also ideally uh, you know comply with regulatory requirements and, and sustainability requirements, uh, their own or their or their customers. Well, it's good to hear that the technology does exist to help companies comply with these new rules on conflict minerals. And so, Ryan Lynch, I want to thank you very much for bringing us up to date on the situation and how companies are doing and complying with the SEC rule. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed the discussion. That was my conversation with Ryan Lynch of UL, talking about the SEC's Conflict Minerals Reporting Rule. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where all of our episodes are now available. Just search for Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any other episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.